Well, good morning. All right, I, I'm, I'm the Bill Jolly. <laughs> I'm Bill Jolly. I'm not sure if I'm the guy he was talking about. Um, that's a hard intro to follow. Um, Luke is, uh, when, I, when I think about your pastor, I, I think of him as one of the most encouraging guys uh, that I know. Every time that I'm around him, he is, he's looking for the good things, and, and he's encouraging those things. He's calling them out, and uh, so uh, I just really appreciate him, and, and I thought it'd just be good for us to, so for those of you that are visiting today or new, uh, he's on sabbatical. Uh, they're, they're away for a while to take some time and catch their breath, refocus, renew, and so I wanted us to start by praying for them, uh, and just to take a minute and think about um, everything that you love and appreciate about, um, about Luke and Paula and their family, and for us to come together and just pray for them right now this morning, uh, that God would work in their lives and use this time that they have um, to, to really encourage them. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for your kindness, for your, your favor that you have put on our lives through Jesus. And Lord, we lift up Luke and Paula and their kids and we pray for, um, we just ask for your blessing on this time of sabbatical. Lord, you rested on the seventh day. You made it holy. You make rest a holy, healthy, uh, happy, um, and, and heartening thing for us that we need. And so I just praise you uh, for the gift of rest. And, and so we pray for them that as they are on sabbatical, that they would meet you in the rest and that they would be recentered around you and, and energized in their confidence and their dependence on you, that um, you are their, their savior, that you're their source of life, um, that their joy is found in you, that their peace is found in you, and that, um, and that the church that they're part of um, is being built by you and is being sustained by you. And um, I just pray that they'd have great joy uh, in their rest. And then as they come back, that there would be great joy in the reunion um, as everyone comes back together. So we pray for them this morning. Ask your blessing on them. And Lord, we ask your presence here in the teaching of your word. I pray that you'd help me with the, the thoughts of my mind and the words of my mouth, that they would encourage uh, that they would reveal Jesus, and that um, the, everyone here would have an encounter with you uh, through your living word. Uh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. I'm a little participatory, so you have to work with me. One of the many weird things that I've done with my life was being a, a middle school English teacher, and, and so I'm not afraid of tough crowds because uh, I worked with eighth graders for a while. So, um, but you guys aren't even a tough crowd. It's, it seems really sweet to, to be with you this morning. Um, and I'd like you to grab your Bible and turn to the book of Ephesians. That's the book that we're going to be in today. So um, if you're new to the Bible, uh, you're going to go to the New Testament. If you've got it on your phone, you can search for Ephesians. And uh, part of the New Testament, you go through the, the Gospels and Acts and First and Second Corinthians, and then you have General Electric Power Company. That's how you can remember those, these four small letters that Paul wrote. General Electric Power Company is Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And so we're going to be in the book of Ephesians, and we're going to go to chapter 2 in Ephesians and be looking at this today. And uh, when, they, when, when, they were talk, when Luke was talking with me about this uh, coming to speak this summer, uh, they were talking about this series as, as your best sermon ever. 
which is a, that's a very intimidating title to pick your best sermon ever. And, and so honestly, I, I didn't do that. Uh, when, uh, when he invited me to come and I just, and I started to pray and think about what we should talk about this morning, this passage just started coming to mind over and over and over and over again. And I couldn't get away from it that this was the passage that we needed to talk about this morning. So, um, so this is, that's where we are. And uh, I was looking through your, your webpage and uh, the sermon page. And on the, on the website, this is what I want to read to you what it says about the preaching of the word here at Legacy. It says, we as leaders and preachers are convinced that all of Scripture points to and elevates the gospel of God for mankind. All of Scripture points to and elevates the gospel of God for mankind. We're resolved to platform the Bible in a way that it drives every sermon through what's called expositional preaching. That's just taking what the Scripture says and and making it clear for people. So if if you're new to listening to or watching a sermon, expect to hear how beautiful God is, how deep our need is, how beautiful his grace is, how heroic Jesus is, and how this all leads us to live differently here on mission as a beautiful church. I didn't know, sometimes you don't ever read the stuff on the website, but that's pretty good. That's some good stuff about the heart behind the preaching here at Legacy. And so I, I wanted to share that with you because it it's ties in so much with the reason that I picked today's passage and, I, and that we're going to talk about it is because th- this passage, which it's Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10, and it is probably one of the most important passages in the New Testament because it summarizes the core message of Christianity. So if like you were trying to pick your, the Bible's so much there to read and understand and try to comprehend. If you're, if you're struggling to find your bearings in the Bible, this is one of the places that I would encourage you to go. It's like, I think it was one of the top 10 sections of the Bible to spend time and read and understand because it actually, it summarizes the core message of Christianity and it actually, it, it really captures the entire story of scripture. And, and if, you're, if the Bible does seem strange to you, it really is. It's telling one big story from Genesis to Revelation. And these verses capture that entire story. So you've got the whole Bible right here in just a few verses. And so if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, then I think this sermon will be really helpful for you because it will help you understand what is Christianity really all about That's the question I hope you're asking. What's Christianity really all about? Um, If you're here today and you're a new Christian, uh, then this will clarify for you what happened when when suddenly you found yourself knowing Jesus and and what what was really going on to clarify that for you. If you're here today and and you've been a Christian for a while, the reality for all of us is that we tend to drift. It is a struggle to live out our faith. And the passage that we'll be studying today will be um, strong encouragement for your soul. You're going to be stronger when you leave here today. Um, and, and then as a church, I think studying this passage together as an entire church, that uh, Paul wrote it to, to go out as a general letter to probably maybe several, many, many churches, maybe to this uh, Ephesian church in particular. But he, want, he wanted to say, this is what, I, what you're founded on. This is your foundation. And so when you think of foundational passages of Scripture 
for your life and for your church, I, I hope that Ephesians 1 through 10 is going to become one of those passages that you will return to over and over and over again for your own life and really to have your bearings as a church. Uh, so Paul wrote this in AD 62. Uh, near, getting closer towards the end of his life. It was during one of his imprisonments in Rome. And, uh, and he begins the letter with greetings. He begins it with praise to God. Uh, he intersperses that with prayers. He's got these really long prayers that are uh, just I- incredible. And, uh, and then he gets into this foundational teaching. That's how, how he gets rolling in this. And, uh, and, and it's, the, it's all in, in the original language that Paul was writing in. This, this is all one sentence. It's all just one, I used to teach English, it's one run-on sentence that just keeps on going and going because he was so excited about what he was writing. And, uh, and so let's take a look at it, and, and then we'll, we'll dig in. So this is Ephesians chapter 2. I'm, I'm reading in the English Standard Version, and we'll read the, the first 10 verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's our passage for today. A lot going on there, and so we're going to take some time and try to unpack it together. Uh, What it does, it does give us the basic storyline of the entire Bible. So, and you can think of the entire Bible in four basic parts that it starts. It tells us about creation, and then it talks about the fall, where things, where that creation was marred. Then it tells us about the restoration, how that problem was dealt with, and then it points us forward to the future to what we call the consummation, where God is going to make everything new. Those are the four movements that the, that's like the whole Bible in four words. That's pretty good, right? Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration or consummation. And so this passage starts us out right in the midst of the creation and fall. Look again at the first few verses. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what does this tell us about ourselves first and foremost? It says you were 
Okay. You seem a little dead. Come on, we got to wake up here this morning, guys. It says you were. That's right. Not good news. Uh, Adam and Eve, the first parents, the, the first people rebelled against God. What's the big deal about them just taking a piece of fruit and eating it? That's a really good question. Is it just God didn't like apples? We don't even know if they were apples. We don't know what the fruit was, but what's the big deal? The big deal with Adam and Eve, our first parents, was that they believed that if they ate that fruit because of what that snake told her, he said, if you eat this, you will be like God. Now, that's quite a temptation. It's kind of like saying if, if, you, uh, if you eat this, you will have, you'll have superpowers. <laughs> uh, your mind will be able to comprehend everything. And so he says to them, he says, if you, if you eat this, you won't die. You'll be like God. That's an incredible temptation. And God had told them not to eat that. He had forbidden them. It was forbidden for them to do that. But they believed the lie ate the fruit, disobeyed and rebelled and and tried to make themselves like God, but instead, in their disobedience, they earned a curse that has been applied to every single person that's been born ever since then. That was the worst day in human history, was the day that Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. A cosmic rebellion is what took place there. And in Romans 5.12, Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so the truth about us as human beings, the whole human race, is we are not born naturally good. We're not even born neutral. We are born, every single one of us, with a proclivity for evil. Those of you who have little children know this. <laughs> you didn't have to teach them. They just came out feisty, okay? That's how, that's human nature. That's what we are. Um, put a bunch of us on an island, Lord of the Flies, Survivor, whatever. Uh, people are not inherently good. I used to teach the Diary of Anne Frank, which deals with the Holocaust. And uh, in the literature book had this little quote at the beginning where Anne says, despite she was, you know, in hiding from, from the Nazis and then eventually she gets captured and put in a concentration camp, um, but her, her diary survives. She says, despite everything that's been happening, I still believe that people are basically good. And that's such a nice sentiment, such a sweet little thing to have uh, associated with this tragic story, but it's not true. It's not true. People are, we're not basically good. We are basically flawed and prone to wonder. Uh, those same Nazis, they were people just like us. They got put into the right set of circumstances and the stuff that was inside of them expressed. And it's the same stuff that's running around inside of every single one of us. We are all by nature children of wrath, children deserving God's wrath. That's the bad news that we see in this, uh, in this passage. But it also, it's got to get you thinking, well, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? And one of the things that Christians believe about Jesus is that he was born in a very different way from every other human that's ever been born, where the rest of us are born into sin, that we're inheriting that from our parents, that Jesus was born uniquely of a virgin birth, and so he's existing in a different state 
than any other human being. So you want to think about that. That's why the, that teaching about the virgin birth is one of the reasons it's so important. It says that we were dead in our trespasses. We're dead in our sins. Your trespasses, that's a, maybe kind of a strange word, but it, it literally, think about you're going out, you know, uh, walking through the woods, and you see those signs that say, you know, no trespassing, private property, and you're like, You're trespassing. You're breaking the law, all right? And if, you know, uh, if that, that redneck comes out there with his rifle and says, get off my land, you were trespassing. You better run. So that's trespassing. You're violating the line that someone has drawn, and we violated the lines that God has drawn. We've all, we all do that. And he says that we're also dead in our sins. And sin is that word that means falling short of the glory of God, falling short of what God requires from us. And, and the, the message of Scripture is that God requires perfection. That's his standard. No matter how high you can jump, you can't make it there. We can't. We've already, we're already fallen. And so that's what he says, that you were dead in those trespasses and sins. And he also uses something, if you look at the next part, he says that you followed the course of this world. You went right along with the world, that you followed the prince of the power of the air. Well, who in the world is that? It's a direct reference to Satan. And, uh, and Paul doesn't shy away from talking about that. He doesn't disembody evil to say, well, it's just kind of this bad thing that's floating around out there in the world and, and is, is sometimes uh, terrible things happen. That when you read the Bible, that it directly points us to this part of the story is that God created servants, uh, angels, and that the most powerful, most incredible of those angels rebelled against God himself and that he led others in rebellion and so God cast him out. And that's, that's what this reference is to the prince of the power of the air. And, and I hope that, you know, there's a, C.S. Lewis said that, that there are two tendencies when we talk about Satan and demons. Uh, there's one tendency is to totally discount them and say it's superstition and that's just hogwash, that's ridiculous, there's no such thing. And the other era is that you, uh, you put way too much emphasis on them and you think that there's a, you know, a, a devil behind every bush and my water heater went out, it's the devil. And, and so there's like this overemphasis uh, uh, of that. But there is a middle ground where you read the Bible and find out that God says that Satan and demons are very real and they're at work in the world and that the world is actually under their sway. And so we want to keep that in mind as, as we're understanding what, is, what, what are we facing here. And this was actually pretty important for the Ephesian church because when you read the book of Acts and we see Paul and his friends are planting churches all over, they go in and they plant a church in Ephesus, in this town where this letter is written to. Here's what it says about them planting the church in that town. This is from Acts 19. You don't have to turn there. It says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched Paul's skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? It's kind of a scary moment. The man in whom the evil spirit leaped, was, in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded, 
And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So that's the planting of this church, that there was quite a bit of supernatural activity that was happening. And, and we see that, and there was also not only these, these, this demonic stuff that was going on, but the people, there was, there was practice of witchcraft and magic. And for some of you, you're thinking, ah, you know, I've never had anything to do with that. For others of you, you have been in those places. You may be in those places right now. And so I want to, I want to encourage you today to come out of those places, to come out of that darkness and anything that even has a whiff of it, to get out of it, just like those people in, uh, in Ephesus. The other thing that I, I want to tell you as a church is that some churches live their whole existence as if there is no Satan and demons and, and never have spiritual warfare on their radar. And as a result, they, stuff keeps happening. People's lives keep getting destroyed, and they're like, what's going on? It's like there's a lion walking around there looking for whom he may devour, which is what Peter said when he was writing to a church. He said, Satan, your adversary, is going around like a lion. And, and so I want to encourage you, without having an undue focus on that aspect of the supernatural, that you're aware of it and that when it rears its ugly head, that you know I need to pray in the name of Jesus. I need to stand in his authority and see those things depart. And that's really good news. I'll tell you, it's one of the most powerful types of uh, uh, examples of God's power at work. When you pray and you stand in the name and the authority of Jesus in a circumstance that is being affected by a demon, because it has to leave. And, you will, and it's, it's so encouraging to see an immediate difference in the environment once that is not a factor in what's going on. So I want to encourage you. Paul does this. If you look at the end of Ephesians in chapter 6, he actually says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So I'm not encouraging you to be weird, <laughs> but I am encouraging you to stand in the authority you have in the name of Jesus and to deal with the spiritual realities that are swirling around us. And that's part of how we live as Christians. You can get it right from the Bible. You don't have to get, get it from some weird video on YouTube. Go right to the scripture. That'll be more helpful. So he goes on to say, let's look at the last part of this, this first section. Paul says that we were by nature, this is the most fearful phrase in this passage, we were by nature children of wrath. Children of of wrath. And that is a heavy word. And this is a heavy concept. And it's one that many of us would really like to shy away from and just say, well, God is love and God is nice and he's friendly and he's, he's, he's just good all the time. And, and yet there, the, the passages in scripture that describe his wrath, that's part of what makes him good is that he has wrath towards what he should have wrath towards. Okay, I'm a father, and I have two little kids, and if I'm walking down the road and some wild dog comes out and is getting ready to attack my kids, 
you better believe that that dog is going to experience my wrath. Why? Because I love my children and I want to protect them and I care about what's good. I would be a terrible dad if I was like, oh, it's such a cute puppy. I'm all love. Here you go, puppy. Eat my children. But it's actually the expression of my love and my character to protect my children, to stand up against what is wrong. And in that case, it's going to be some serious wrath on that dog. That actually demonstrates that character. And so God has wrath. It's part, of, it's, it's, it's part of his goodness and his righteousness. And it says that we were by nature children of wrath. That means all of us. I'll never forget, I was uh, sitting on an airplane, uh, talking, got, got to know the guy beside me, found out he grew up in the church. His dad was a pastor. Uh, his mom and his sisters were all really super involved in the church. It never really clicked for him, and, he, all, and he, he said, it's like they were always looking down their nose at me, and they're always saying, you, just, you, need to, you need to get it right, you need to shape up, you need to behave, you need to figure it out, and he said, I just always felt like they were looking down their nose at me, and because and, and, we actually we got into talking about the gospel and talking about all these things, and, and as I shared with him, we're all in this boat. None of us, if, if life was a Western, we would all be wearing the black hat, all of us. Jesus is the only one who wears the white hat. He's the hero. We are not. And, and he said to me, he said, man, when you were saying that, it was the opposite of what my religious family has been telling me for the last 25 years. Because you're not looking down your nose at me. You're telling me that we're all in the same predicament and that we all need God. And it was like you, you could see the light in his eyes as he was starting to understand the gospel for the first time. And so this is actually, it's part of the good news that we're all children of wrath. And so what that should do for us is it, it ought to create a lot of humility if we know that we're all in the same predicament with every other person, every other person who's walking the streets of Knoxville today, we're all, we're all started out in the same predicament. It should give us that humility. And it also, though, it, it gives us, the, the good news of the gospel doesn't make sense to someone who doesn't have a, a sense of what the bad news is. If a person doesn't know, I, am, I was born in sin, I have rebelled against God, and if nothing else changes, I'm going to face his wrath. If they don't know that, then the good news doesn't make any sense. And so that's part of the message that Paul gives as foundational to the church in Ephesus and, and really to us. And he says, so here's this really bad news. You are children of wrath. We are all children of wrath. But, but God, and look how this whole thing turns, because this is where it gets beautiful. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This, that little phrase, but God, is one of the most important that's two words that we see in the New Testament because it changes everything from being dead and being a child of wrath. It says, but God, because he's rich in love and he's filled with, he's got mercy and he makes us alive. Are you catching that? Can you see that? Do you see the pattern? There's actually a, a, an interesting pattern. It says we're dead and we deserve wrath. 
And then you get to the middle. But God, instead of giving us wrath, he gives us mercy and love, and he makes us alive. It starts with the bad news of death and wrath, and then God shows up, and it brings mercy, love, and life. That is the gospel. That is the source of your strength as a Christian. We were dead. We deserved wrath. I I think of this as the walking dead passage. It always makes me think of zombies for some reason because it says you were, you were dead and you were walking according this way and you were children of wrath because what do you do with zombies? <laughs> ah! You know, I mean, it's just you fight them off and you take them out. That's what they're, that they are children of wrath. That's their future is to be destroyed. And it says we're all like that. But instead of receiving, but instead of wrath, God, in his mercy and love, does something incredible. And he, ch- he takes zombies who are just driven along by this, this desire to consume, must eat brain. That's what they're, they're just, it's, it's kind of a, an interesting symbol of the human condition to think of that, these walking dead. And then God says, but instead of destroying those zombies, that God says, I've got mercy, I've got love. And, and, and so this passage, it, it not only tells us the truth about us, and what our predicament is as humans, but it shows us what God is like. Look at that. And if, you did, if you're a marker or a highlighter in your Bible, that you would mark this, this part in verse 4 because this tells you what God is like. Most people are the most confused about who they are and who God is. Uh, and A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think of God. That's the most important thing about you. John Calvin, in his Institutes, the very first sentence, this great leader of the church, he says that all wisdom, that is all true wisdom, consists in the knowledge of two things, ourselves and God. Real wisdom comes when you really know who and what you are, and then you know who and what God is. And this passage tells us God is rich in mercy. God does what he does because he loves us. He is rich in mercy. Lamentations 3, 23 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's who God is. You may have thought far differently about God, but this morning I'm here to tell you that that's what he's like. And it says, by grace you have been saved. This is huge too. Because the default nature of humanity is to think that there is a God, he's probably angry with me, and I need to do something to atone. I need to make sure that when I get to the end of my life that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I need to make sure that at least I'm a little bit over the scale so I can say, God, you know, look, you, you kind of owe me, all right? I, I did pretty good. I was a pretty good person. So, so I, this eternity thing should work out. That's actually how every religion works. It, it, it tells you there is something that you have to do in order to earn your way into paradise. E- even like the, the Vikings, you know, they were like, you have to die with your sword in your hand, and then you'll go to Valhalla, okay? Actually, I, I, was, I witnessed to a guy one time who was an Odinist. Uh, he, he, like, worshiped Thor, literally. Uh, and and <laughs> that's a belief. You've got to die with your sword in your hand. And uh, if that's every religion actually has, there's something that you have to do to get yourself into paradise. And 
Christianity teaches the exact opposite. It's not that there's something you have to do. It's, it's an announcement that there is something that has been done that will bring you into eternity. And so Paul says that. He says it's by grace that you have been saved. Uh, and if you look down in, at verses 8 and 9, he says, you've been saved by grace through faith, and it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's by grace. It's a gift. It's not earned. It's a gift. It's not earned by your good behavior. And, and this is really, really important for you. That Those of you that are like brand new or you're, th- you're, you're not yet a Christian, you're thinking about uh, maybe some of these spiritual things is to say, well, don't I need to get cleaned up before I start being a, becoming a church person? And the good news is that you don't get cleaned up before you come to God. God has already done what needed to be done so you can come to him with all of your stuff. The other thing that happens in us is that even if you've been a Christian for a long time, you have this temptation to default back to the mentality that I, I still have to earn my relationship with God and earn acceptance from God. And, and that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not the gospel. That we, our acceptance by God is based on his love and his mercy and on his grace for us through Jesus. Now, that's a hard thing to understand. I was actually, I was talking about this with my five-year-old a couple nights ago and trying to explain it to him. And so I said, imagine, he's just started kindergarten. And uh, I always cry when I see him walking in those doors with a little backpack on. He's like, the little man's going into the world. Uh, and, and, but he's, he's there, and he's starting to learn about, you know, you got to do your papers and get your checks and, and get your, you know, your grades. And so I'm trying to give an analogy to him, and I say, it's kind of like this. If you, let's say you do your work, and you do a terrible job on your work, and you get like zeros on all your papers. And so all your grades are zeros. And, and you're feeling pretty bad about it. And, but then there's one kid in the class who is a genius and awesome. And this kid gets 100 at the top of every one of his pages. And that's what his score is for the class. You got a zero, he's got 100. And then I looked at my little son and I said, what if that kid took his paper and he took your paper and he erased your name on your paper and he wrote in his name and he took his paper with the hundreds on it and he erased his name and he wrote your name, and he gave that to the teacher. And my little son was like, mm. he got the biggest grin on his face, because he was feeling terrible about having all zeros. He was like, that's, oh man, I'd be crushed. But then when he heard about somebody giving him that, those 100s, he, he, he was filled with joy with it. And, and that's a picture of what Christ has done for us. Because in life, we had failed to match that standard that God requires, and yet Jesus perfectly met it, and then he takes, he takes his paper, he takes his perfect score, and he puts our name at the top of it. He takes our terrible paper, our ter- terrible score, and he puts his name at the top of that, and he takes the punishment and the shame, he gives us the reward. That's a picture of God's grace. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. It's a gift. If you read in the rest, just in the first two chapters of Ephesians, uh, Paul not only says that we are made, that God made us alive, he says we're adopted. We experience redemption. We experience forgiveness. All of those images are not images of you doing something to, to get, to please God and to get his favor. It says you're adopted. You don't adopt yourself. All right. God adopts you. 
It's like God walking into the orphanage and he goes into the back corner and here's all these little orphans and you are the scruffiest orphan there. You're not Orphan Annie. You're not smiling and dancing and singing and happy and winsome. You, are, you got mange. You got fleas. You got a bad attitude. You're like, Rrr, when he walks in there and he says, I want that one. I'm going to adopt that one, the little, the little messed up one right there. That's how God's mercy works. It's not because you're so good. It's because he's so good. And so he draws us in and he gives us life and he gives us redemption and forgiveness you, you can't forgive yourself. If you, if, you, if you messed up, you did something, you, like you, you, know, you cussed somebody out, you can't just say, well, uh, I forgive me for cussing you out. That's not how forgiveness works. You have to be forgiven by the one that you have offended, that you've done wrong to. And the good news is we have, our, our race, humanity, has cosmically offended and done wrong towards a, a good and holy God. And, and so the forgiveness has to come from him. And that's what's offered to us in Jesus. And Paul uses this, these phrases all throughout um, his writings where he talks about how we are in Christ. Uh, and um, I just went through the first two chapters of this, uh, of Ephesians, and, uh, and I marked them all. There were 19 references in just the first two chapters to this idea of, he says, you are in Christ. Christ. And, uh, and I was thinking about it, and I found another guy who said that there are over 200 times in the New Testament is this idea of being in Christ referenced, being in Christ. And so that's the good news that we are actually here celebrating and reminding ourselves of today is that we are in Christ, that you can be, come, that you can be in Christ. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, or you say, man, I've, I'm far from God. I don't know what this guy's talking about when he says being in Christ. And I would invite you today to believe what you're hearing, and you can be in Christ. You can be united with Christ, and it changes everything. I can tell you that from personal experience, because even though I grew up in church, I'm from the South, just like most of you guys, I was like, grew up on the buckle of the Bible belt, and, and my, my dad was a pastor, he was a youth pastor, and I, I can remember him sharing the gospel at a summer camp and inviting people to respond to Jesus, and I sat there, and I grabbed the sides of that plastic seat, and I said, I'm not going up there. I'm not going up there. I, I'm a pretty good person. I didn't understand the gospel because I was saying, I'm a pretty good person because the core message of Christianity is you are not a pretty good person. You're more messed up than you could really ever cope with if you really had to see it. But that's only half the gospel. The other half of it is not only are you more messed up than you could ever really handle, but you're also more loved than you would ever dare hope. But I didn't understand that when I was grabbing onto the side of my chair and saying, I'm a pretty good person. I don't really need Jesus like this. That was when I was 12, and I went on, and, and by the time I was 17, my life revolved around everything else. Uh, my goal in life when I was 17 was uh, I was going to survive high school, go to college for one year, um, learn how to make LSD, and then uh, travel uh, and follow the Grateful Dead and, and be a street pharmacist uh, uh, for, for my life's ambition. And that's where I was headed but a friend of mine invited me 
to come to her church, and I'll never forget walking in the door and hearing the people singing, and suddenly I sensed God's presence, and a light bulb came on, that said, and that light bulb was that God is real. God, and I was like, everything I'd heard from my parents and friends, this is all real. And I kept coming back, and I kept praying, okay, God, if you're real, you know, show me, do something. And, and as I left that church a few nights later, I was driving down the road, uh, came to a stoplight. I, was in my, I had a Volkswagen van, because that's, that's how the street pharmacist rolled. Uh, and they call it the Jolly Trolley um, or the Weed Wagon. Those are the two terms of endearment for that vehicle. Um, I was sitting at a stoplight, and, and, and suddenly, in, in all of my lostness and all of my not following God, not having anything together, but sitting there, and suddenly, I couldn't see anything. I was on no drugs at the time. Uh, I couldn't see anything. I was like, everything blacked out. And then the most brilliant, the most beautiful light filled my eyes. And I heard this voice like no other voice speak. And that voice said, I am Savior. And I knew that it was Jesus Christ. And I said, yes. <laughs> Yes, you are Savior. And in that moment of God's revelation, of him revealing himself to me, I got the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is our Savior, that we need him desperately. We need him today, and we're going to need him every single day of our lives. And I invite you today to grab a hold of that, to hang on to that, to build your life on that, because when, we, when it says we're in Christ that really means something. And that happened for me on that night. I was united to Christ. The Holy Spirit came into my life. And it was so different because the first 17 years, I knew what it meant to live a life alone where it's just me in here. And if that's your story you're here today and it's just you alone on the inside, you can be in Christ. You can know him today. For those of you that do know Jesus, it's your greatest treasure that you are in Christ that you are in Christ. And, um, Luke mentioned that I'm a poet, and uh, I love teaching poetry to, to kids, and they hated it at first, and then they'd love it by the end of the year. And uh, one of the things that has meant a lot to me in my, just my personal life and time with God has been a book of poetic prayers or prayer poems, and it's called The Valley of Vision. Has anybody heard of that at all? Hey, look at the, all right, this is a good crowd. It is, it, the rest of you guys, you can go talk to them and, and find out about it, because it's awesome. They're prayer poems that have been written, most they're written from the, in the 16, 17, and 1800s, so they're old school. There's a lot of these and thous, but once you work through that, it's rich. And I was hanging out with some dudes on Friday morning, and one of them said, I got to read you guys this thing. I got to read you this, this, this prayer. And so I want to read it for you guys, and I want you to close your eyes, okay? So you can track with, what, with, with just the words. So close your eyes. This is a prayer. We don't, we, they don't list who it's written by, but this is what it says. Think about being in Christ, what we have in Jesus. It says, O Lord of grace, the world is before me this day, and I am weak and fearful, but I look to thee for strength. If I venture forth alone, I stumble and fall, but on the beloved's arms I am firm as the eternal hills. If left to the treachery of my heart, I shall shame thy name, but if enlightened, guided, upheld by thy spirit, I shall bring thee glory. 
Be thou my arm to support, my strength to stand, my light to see, my feet to run, my shield to protect, my sword to repel, my sun to warm. To enrich me will not diminish thy fullness. All thy loving kindness is in thy son. I bring him to thee in the arms of faith. I urge his saving name as the one who died for me. I plead his blood to pay my debt of wrong. Accept his worthiness for my unworthiness, his sinlessness for my transgressions, his purity for my uncleanness, his sincerity for my guile, his truth for my deceits, his meekness for my pride, his constancy for my backslidings, his love for my enmity, his fullness for my emptiness, his faithfulness for my treachery, his obedience for my lawlessness, his glory for my shame, his devotedness for my waywardness, his holy life for my unchaste ways, his righteousness for my dead works, his death for my life. Amen. I love hearing about what we have in Jesus. I love being reminded and having that pass before my mind of what we have in Jesus because we're bringing all of our junk, all of our mess. He's bringing all of this treasure and he's exchanging it with us. That is good news that we have life for our death. And that's what God is all about. And Paul gets into that at the very end. Let's close by looking at the last part of this passage. It says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. You're not working to save yourself. God is working. He is the one who is rescuing, who is saving. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. And this is really good news. When you have a Monday morning, like you might have tomorrow, and you wake up and you're like, ugh, life. This is one of the verses that you can preach to yourself. It says, I'm his workmanship. The Greek there is the same word that we get the word poem from. I'm his carefully made, handmade workmanship. And I'm created in Christ Jesus for good works. I'm not saved by my good works, but I'm saved for good works. God has a good plan for me. God has a good plan for legacy for this church. And he prepared it beforehand. And that's also very encouraging to know that God knows everything and that from before the foundations of time, he saw me, he saw my life, he knew that he would rescue me and that he had a purpose for me. And it's the same for you, that there's a purpose for your life that was decided a long time ago by a great and good God that you should walk in them. And so that's the challenge for you as you leave here today, that you would remember the gospel that you would grab a hold of it and then live out of the gospel and let it define your life. Let it orient you in all of the life that you face and everything that we encounter, that it would say, I'm going back to the gospel. That's my compass. I'm going back to the gospel. That's my foundation. That's the thing that I love to think about because it it has this effect like no other. It brings dead people to life.
That's what Jesus is all about. That's what this passage is all about. And so I wanted to give that to you today as some encouragement as you walk through your life, as, as legacy moves forward, that, that you consider that. I, I believe we're, we're, you guys, will, we're going to take uh, the Lord's Supper together. Is that right, Scott? Yeah. And so uh, as you come to, to take the, that broken bread that represents his body, as you come to take the cup that represents his blood, that you would remember the gospel this morning and, and that it would be sweet to you, that it would be encouraging and life-giving. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll transition to the next part. Father, thank you for your word to us today. Thank you for Jesus, the one who gives us life, uh, who says to everyone, uh, come to me, all you who labor, all you who are weary, uh, and find rest. And so, Lord, we thank you that, that we can do that. Thank you that you are the rescuer, that you are the savior, that you are the God that, uh, that comes to us and brings life to our death. And, and I pray that as, um, for every, every person that's here today, uh, with whatever their place of need, um, whatever's going on in their life, that they would be able to bring that to you, Jesus. Um, that people that um, have never known you, that they would know you today in Jesus' name. That people that are hurting, that they would know your, your healing and your comfort. Um, that, people that people that are joyful and feel your strength, that they would um, just be able to, to share that with others. That you would fill them with compassion and uh, joy in, in sharing and encouraging others. Um, that your people would be made strong, strengthened, uh, encouraged. And, um, uh, and, and able to lift up their voices. Lord, as we sing this morning, help us to sing right to you. Help us to hear the words and to lift our own voices and sing right to you because you are worthy, because you are the Savior. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>